Welcome to ACME Talks and Live Events. You are listening to a podcast from the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. This talk has been recorded in front of a live studio audience. This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes, which may not be suitable for younger audiences. And the opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. We were there the whole time. <laughs> Uncanny. Uncanny. Uh, a little bit of housekeeping for us first. Uh, yes, Outland is on 9.30 Wednesday nights on ABC One. <laughs> But it's also on 10.30 Thursday nights on ABC2. So by the time you leave here and get home... You can watch it again. It's perfect, perfect timing. Just for those of you who are uh, concerned... <laughs> we don't want to sound prudish. But there is a... Oh, see, I've gone too fast already. No, it's, it's too easy. I'm not going for it. It's no. too easy. <laughs> too early. There is a literal fuckload of sex on TV (laughs) at the moment. And like a massacre's worth of of violence. Uh, So I think there's probably too much. I think there's quite possibly just a little bit... Well, you'll see later. But the, the shows I'm talking about are things like Rome, Game of Thrones... Underbelly, In the Night Garden, <laughs> Spartacus, Blood and Sand and Vengeance and Scowling, Boss and Dexter. They're just some of the shows. Uh, Sean mentioned some earlier. There's going to be more that will come up later on. Uh, and it, it really feels like, at the moment, a show won't get a look in unless we have some kind of visual vice to, to get us hooked. So, I've put together, just so you know what we're talking about, just so you know what we're talking about, I've put together 60 seconds of as much sex and violence from television as I could fit into that time zone. All right, you ready? This is the current state of sex and violence on television in 60 seconds. So there's a lot, right? 
a lot. I had to cut actual seconds out of that to try to, to, to fit more stuff in. Uh, what, what I want to know, though, John. Yeah. I'm in shock, actually. I'm still quite, quite horrified. But my first thought was, I'm not letting my children see that, followed by, I don't have any children. Yeah. But Lucky. I was still... Lucky. I was still horrified. I want to know where this has come from, though. Mm. I want to know why suddenly we have all of this on, on television, because it wasn't like that when we were growing well, up. Well, conveniently, Josh, I've spent the last four days doing a history of sex and violence on television. <laughs> Who would have thought that would come in handy? <sighs> so, I'm so glad because I made a sign. It's <laughs> like that. Sometimes a plan just comes together. Yeah. yeah um, I was looking into... I thought it would be interesting because we're going to discuss these shows on sex and violence. And like Josh says, the shows we're looking at are actually... Uh, weirdly enough, they combine sex and violence. That's kind of the theme of, of these shows. So I wanted to have a look back at the history on television to see how we've got to this point. Um, the, the weird thing with television history is that it's an it's a annoyingly inexact science because it sort of boils down to film is an important thing that people care about and they do proper research and there are books and things. Television has never been treated that seriously. So, for example, the Americans assume anything they've done is the first time it's ever happened on television. The English usually have done it first on television but wipe the tapes afterwards so no one can actually see it anymore. And Australians assume we've never done anything first on television. And sometimes we have, and it's a bit of a surprise to go, oh, that was us, really? And clearly nothing else has happened anywhere else ever. So I wanted to go back, and uh, we're doing sex and violence together tonight, but I'm yep. going to look at them separately for the, the purpose of this. So if you go back to the dawn of television, sort of the 50s, the golden age, um, one of the things you'll find is that it's a fairly chaste environment. So here we see from I Love Lucy that uh, Lucy and Ricky don't even get to share a bed together. They're married and, and possibly at this point have a child, but they still sleep in single beds. And this was quite common for sitcoms around that period. Does anyone know the first couple who got to sleep together on American television in a double bed? Flintstones are, are fairly early on, yeah? There's another one. The Brady Bunch is a bit earlier than the Brady Bunch. The, the most popularly given answer to that is the Munsters. Um, <laughs> actually, oh, that's a great picture. That's actually a picture of the set of I Love Lucy. I found that earlier. It was quite it's, but without the books. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there's the Munsters in bed together. Uh, yeah, because that's pretty hot. But <laughs> this is, is the, the most commonly incorrect answer given to that question. The first couple on American television who got to sleep in a bed were actually, I'm sure you'll recognise those two, it's Mary Kay and Johnny. <laughs> now, Mary Kay and Johnny is the first sitcom ever made. It ran from 1947. Uh, it was broadcast on the Dumont television network live out of New York and was about a married couple who lived in a New York apartment. The interesting thing is they got to sleep in a single bed at the time. It wasn't until sort of, 10 years later suddenly these were being split up. And this is the weird thing, too, with all these histories. There's a cycle in which things will go from acceptable to unacceptable and back again. And uh, no, co no episodes of this exist anymore, either. So, uh, there's, actually, there's apparently one episode in the Paley Center collection in America huh? on Bakelite or something. I think you have to, <laughs> you have to rub yourself against it to actually be able to watch it. So, that's, um, so sure, that was, that, was, yeah, that was the swinging 40s. Of course, they were going to be sharing a bed together. Uh, but pregnancy, that's another, that's another step. Obviously, pregnancy isn't allowed on television. So, yeah. The 40s, if they're sharing a bed, though, surely that's just economy for the war. 
40, 47, though. You know, oh. Everyone went crazy in 47. Oh, yeah, yeah, everyone yeah. Went yeah. Beds for everyone. Yeah. Um, so pregnancy was the next one. Uh, let's go again. Pregnancy. Anyone know first sitcom did pregnancy? Lucy. Uh, Lucy. Here's a clip from I Love Lucy. The episode... Oh, I'm going the wrong way, actually. Before I start, the episode is actually called Lucy is Enciente, because she wasn't allowed to be pregnant in English, only in Spanish, because that's a slutty language. Uh, this clip is fascinating because you'll see the links they go to to avoid using the word pregnant at any point, because pregnancy would make people think sex, apparently, in the same way that Baptists can't have sex standing up because it leads to dancing. So... Thank you. And now for the... Oh, thank you. Excuse me. Pardon me, please. Oh, isn't this wonderful? Listen to this. Dear Mr. Ricardo, my husband and I are going to have a blessed event. I just found out about it today, and I haven't told him yet. I heard you sing a number called We're Having a Baby, My Baby and Me. If you will sing it for us now, it will be my way of breaking the news to him. Isn't that wonderful? Of course I'll do it for you. Sure. Uh, my... Oh, wait a minute. I got a wonderful idea. Why don't we bring the couple up here and I'll sing it right to them, man? Eh? Come on, let's bring them up on the floor. Come on, Paul. Come on, we just want to wish you luck. Who is it? Rock up my baby under three tops. Baby. Oh. Under three tops. When the wind blows, the cradle will fall. When the bow breaks, the cradle will fall. Honey. Honey. Honey, no. Really? Why didn't you tell me? Why, you didn't give me a chance. Are you kidding me? I want you to meet my mother, I mean my wife. My wife is the most Freudian thing you could possibly say. Um, I, I also think we should all find a way of making the phrase blessed event one that we use from now on. Just, you know, how... Oh, blessed event. Well, yeah. John, John, it's like... Yeah. Uh, if somebody was pregnant out of wedlock, yeah. they were in trouble. Right, but if they were pregnant, if they were pregnant in, wedlock, in wedlock, blessed event. event. Uh, now, the reason also I played that clip, because, as, as you point out, I Love Lucy is the most commonly given incorrect answer to that question. <laughs> the actual answer to the first pregnant couple on television was our old friends, Mary Kay and Johnny. <laughs> uh, Mary Kay became pregnant uh, in 1948. They, they, they did the traditional thing we still see now of trying to hide it. So, you know, she'd be you know, carrying home pineapples or, you know, I bought a space hopper. And eventually, which is 1948, it was quite impressive. And uh, eventually they went, actually, no, she's pregnant. Uh, she gave birth in real life because the show was live. When she was giving birth in a hospital, they were filming an episode with, with Johnny in a, in a hospital corridor waiting for her to give birth. Uh, their child then later became part of the cast. It's quite creepy, really. Um, and actually, this is, this is still sexy first, so I'm going to get this out of the way. This is my big discovery. Um, first interracial kiss on television, anyone? Star Trek. Here's the clip from Plato's Stepchildren, an episode now, of Star Trek. Begin.
Just look at all that acting. Now, <laughs> I, I bring this one up because uh, Star Trek is the most commonly given incorrect answer to that question. <laughs> First interracial kiss on television was, of course, not Mary Kay and Johnny. <laughs> But it would have been good if it was. Um, it happened in 1964, four years before that, in England, in a show called Emergency Ward 10. Uh, and just bring this up, because it is fascinating we're talking about television history. We, we all know that Star Trek is the first interracial kiss, except that it actually isn't. And in Emergency Ward 10, there were two couples, uh, a, a, a surgeon, Louise Marler, and Dr. Giles Farmer. They became the first television uh, kiss between black and white actors. Uh, which was apparently controversial at the time, but also they kissed because they were in love with each other and not because telekinetic aliens were forcing them to do it. So it's interesting (laughs) to see the difference in societal... um, Now, I can't find that clip, but I really do want to show you a tiny bit of Emergency Ward 10. Yes, of course, if you say so, I'll have to. Right. Blasted new blasted registrar. What's up? He's put me on casualty duty tonight. <laughs> oh, bad luck. And I'm supposed to be taking La Belle to the ball. Oh, well, cheer up. She'd have only been dancing with Lane Russell in her heart. Oh, shut up. Hello, Rex. I told you not to come. You said nobody could forbid me. You had a bad dose of virus pneumonia. You were only discharged yesterday. Of the first John, clip looks like it's out of your montage. John, John, I have. <laughs> Sorry, I've, Josh, hang on. <laughs> what is it, Josh? I've, I have a terrible problem. A yes? terrible problem. Mm. I a feel t- you've been told as an actor to stay in a very unconvincing pose <laughs> so the camera doesn't have to move. I was, I was on the phone and they locked the camera <laughs> off. <laughs> or we're reenacting one of the clips you played in the first sequence that we yeah. saw. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. If we were brother and sister. Emergency War 10 was so ahead of its time. Now. <laughs> We now move on to more raunchy stuff. Now, the first full frontal nudity on television does appear to be Australia's own. Yeah, we're number Star, one. Star, Star Trek. Um, <laughs> I Love Lucy. Mary Kay and Johnny. Mary yeah, Kay no, and Johnny. Uh, we actually have, uh, this is so amazing that we did it several times in the 70s. Uh, Matlock Police had a tiny moment, uh, but number 96 was, was the big one. And number 96 went so far to actually introduce a character called Miss Hemingway, whose role was to walk around nude. That's what Miss Hemingway was for. Now, I've just got a sort of montage here. Actually, Jay, can we bring the, the music down a bit? Yeah, that's just the thing, Jim. I didn't hear that. Um, there we can see Miss Hemingway and her marvellous work. Uh, the storyline of Miss Hemingway was that she turns up as a nudist, and throughout the course of, of the story, she learns to love clothes. And that's actually her journey. That's her arc. Uh, number 96 also had Joe Finlayson, who was... Uh, like, probably one of the first gay characters ever on television, a really great gay character, had lovers, didn't die, didn't get, you know, bashed and left to die at the end of eight weeks. Um, so I don't understand. How does that suit the natural order? How does that work? Yeah. Now, the other thing about these clips I'm showing you, these are taken, because I was too lazy to find them myself, from an episode of 20 to 1, the Channel 9 show. Uh, this episode's called 20 to 1 Ways to Fill Up an Hour When You Don't Have Any Content. And... <laughs> What you might notice in them is they've actually airbrushed out the nudity. So what was acceptable on Australian primetime television in the 70s was not acceptable 30 years later, which is, again, just odd. Yeah, there was... If, if you haven't... If, if you just want to play it back in your mind, if you're unsure, there was a lot of really squinting going on in this area 
here on the screen. <laughs> that area. To make it all real again. Very little detail. So I find it all that that, that uh, cycles come around, and again, NYPD Blue in America, which is this is year, years and years later, 2003, an episode called Nude Awakening, so you can see what they're doing there, featured a nude scene by Charlotte Ross. Now this breached the Federal Communication Commission's indecency law, and they were fined 1.2 million dollars for this footage. The actual amount of nudity in this sequence is seven seconds, so that. Uh, There we go. So that's 1.2 million bucks running now. Overturned in 2011 on appeal, uh, it turned out that the U.S. Second Circuit Court of Appeals threw out the ruling, saying that the actual um, FCC's rules of indecency were unconstitutionally vague and chilling. And <laughs> also, and this bit's quite important, that nudity in itself per se is not indecent. Uh, the Parents' Televisions Council came back saying children and families are the real victims today. This will embolden the networks to air even more graphic material. Well, that didn't happen. Oh. <laughs> Slightly more confusing, though, is um, this is from Series 10 of NYPD Blue. In Series 2, Dennis Franz takes a shower in which there is quite a bit more nudity and there was no fine for that. And let's look at that now. <laughs> No. What are you doing? I thought it'd be fun if we both took a shower. Two for the price of one. Uh, I usually shower alone. You want me to leave? No, I'm, I'm just saying it's all. Here. I'll wash your back. single most erotic moment of television, I'm sure you'll all agree. <laughs> Very few people know Dennis Franz had the cleanest right hip in all of television. <laughs> I, do you know something just occurred to me? Because I kept thinking, it's quite perky ass, isn't it? It's, it? Is it his? Do we know? Was it ever confirmed? Was it I, think, I, think it was, I think it was his. Does his own work? Uh, yeah. Marvellous. So, um, if you want to, if you want to research sex on television, a lot of these things are, are quantifiable. It's interesting. There are a lot of numbers you can find. This you know, first nudity, first this, uh, first head job. I found an actual listing for somewhere on, on a fictional program. Violence is different because violence has always been everywhere. It's it's very rare to people never question violence. You know, sex 
outrageous people, violence is just a common piece of television. The first congressional investigation of television violence began in 1954 uh, in America. It was a Senate subcommittee to investigate juvenile delinquency. Concerns were raised particularly on the shows of The Rifleman and The Untouchables. I just want to show you, these are the opening credits. Um, especially the opening credits of The Rifleman, just talking about sex and violence. This is uh, how that show starts. <laughs> it's not even subtext. It's just, it's just there, Chuck Connors, you saucy minx. It was my rifle all along. <laughs> uh, and in 1961, the first investigation was published into this sort of television. Um, it was a, a, a very long-running study. It, it involved 11 different studies in 10 American cities and Canadian communities. Uh, what they found when it came to violence in television, and I think this is very important, uh, they said the content television was extremely violent and that fighting, shooting, and murder were common. But what they found were, for some children, under some conditions, some television is harmful. For other children, under the same conditions, or for the same children under other conditions, it may be beneficial. For most children, under most conditions, most television is probably neither harmful nor particularly beneficial. So I think we've all learned something from that. Well, yeah, it's uh, basically raising children is easy. <laughs> yeah, no, stop you complaining. Um, there, is, there is one, actually, this bit, actually, creepy, this is a very creepy bit of footage, you, you might want to look away. Uh, this is, there is one thing we can say, this is considered to be the first real murder on uh, death on television. It's, it's Lee Harvey Oswald, uh, because when JFK was shot, that was shot on film cameras for the news. But there was a news camera when Lee Harvey Oswald was being taken uh, down from... I don't remember where he was being taken to and from. Uh, he was being transferred from the police basement to the nearby county jail when Jack Ruby stepped out of the crowd and shot him. Uh, and so this was viewed by millions of people. It went live to air. Oswald didn't die at this exact moment. He died in the hospital later on. But it's still just a moment like this captured for anyone watching at home is quite odd and quite disquieting to think of that it's there forever. Uh, there is, weirdly, what I mentioned before about the English doing it first, there is a weird also connection to this story, which is that there was a drama called Underground that was a live-to-air teleplay in England on the ITV network in 1958. Uh, and during it, one of the cast members had a heart attack and died. But being live television, they carried on. So he, was, he died off-screen... But his character then had to be kind of just excused by all the other actors who had to continue to the end of the piece. Which is... And it's kind of said that that's the one thing he's now famous for, too. Gareth Jones is basically, as it says here on Wikipedia, a British actor chiefly remembered for the circumstances of his death. And the play was about Still, nuclear war. It's a bit better to, you know, than, than not being remembered at all. Remembered who, at all. Else, who else was in that Well, that, that's true. Yes, I do not know. Um, right. And it was Peter Cushing and Judy Dench, but it doesn't say <laughs> it, it doesn't, doesn't say does it. that, no. And violence, again, I just wanted to point out, we were talking before about that, that fine for NYPD Blue. Um, in 2006, CBS was fined more than $3 million for airing a Without a Trace episode containing a teen orgy, whereas in the similar period, The Shield played these clips, which, when I was editing them, were too harrowing, and I decided not to show them after all. So... They are terrible. <laughs> so we, we were going to act them out, but then that would just not do them justice. They, they are essentially 
someone, this is both from season two, aren't, aren't they, John? Both, both from season yes. two. Yes. Someone being set on fire and someone having their head burnt against a stove. In a fight sequence, yeah. And not in that fun James Bond way. No, 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 no. Not in that, ha, now I make my escape. Yeah, yeah. They, no, it's, do you like that? Do you like that? What about if it's closer? Yeah, so that, that is kind of, that brings up to, uh, to date, basically. That's, that's to the point we are now. There is one more combination of, of sex and violence that we were a number one in Australia, which I wanted to mention. 1998, Libra Invisibles ran an ad, which <laughs> some of you might remember. Yes. It was a film noir-themed ad in which uh, a woman who had murdered someone used a, a sanitary pad to mop up the last of the blood on the floor, <laughs> becoming the first ad ever to show that product doing the thing it's actually designed to do. <laughs> which, you know... Which is yeah, to clean yeah. floors. Well, well to, to, to mop up blood. Oh! Yes. Now, sure, it wasn't menstrual blood. She had murdered someone, but you know what it's like that time of the month, ladies. Am I right? Uh, but... <laughs> But it really was the, the, first, the first time a, a, a product like that didn't do the blue liquid and the euphemisms and actually said, that's genuinely what it does. It was apparently, uh, people were so outraged, it got taken off air and got replaced with one in which a woman uses it to mop up perfume and then gets a small dog to piss in a, in a bottle because yeah. that's more acceptable to society. Is that why that terrible yeah. ad happened? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So, again, Australia, we're number one. Okay, so that brings us up to... The current day. The current day, uh, which just, for those of you who have forgotten, is all about this. <laughs> now, so this, this is all the sex, right? This is all the sex and all the violence and all the stuff that makes shows today what they are. To an extent. Uh, there are good shows. There are good shows that have sex and violence in them. John mentioned The Shield. I think all the violence in The Shield is entirely warranted and adds to the story. My problem with these shows in particular, the Dexter, the uh, Game of Thrones, Boss in the Night Garden, I think they all... It's the same joke. didn't work as well. No, no, it was good. It was worth doing. It was all right. Yeah, yeah. I I don't think anyone noticed. No one noticed? Very smooth. 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 Uh, the, The problem with all these shows is that there is no great content other than the sex and violence. Really, they're just... Boring series of events. Oh, come on, Josh. That can't be true, though. You, really? Well, you know, these are great programs people love. How can you, how can you declare? Look, I have... It, it just happens. <laughs> right. It just so happens that I've put together some clips from these shows that don't contain any sex or violence in them. Before we get there, though, I just, I, I just want to talk about that shot. <laughs> Spartacus Blood and Sand did an amazing thing with violence because they had, they had the violence that you can actually see happening where people are stabbing each other. And, but then they had all of this extra CGI uh, and, and layered stuff. So here they, they're just splashing some red liquid on a, on a table and then putting that behind them. It looks extraordinary because it looks like all this blood is coming out of his back. But as you all know, when you stab someone in the back, not that much <laughs> blood comes out. <laughs> It's surprising that it's, it's very hard to stand out of the way of it if it does, like yeah. he's doing. So, very impressive. Like, Spartacus Blood and Sand for that, very impressive. For storytelling, not great, and still one of the more interesting ones. Uh, so, these are the bits that happen around the sex and violence. And just see if you can stay entertained or interested. ...controversy would have any effect on his recent show of support for the governor. Oh, you know me, guy. I've always been an independent thinker. 
Not about to change that now. Now, just, sorry, I just want to pause it there because that, that's a great scene. That is a great scene in Boss where uh, this guy, the, the, the current governor, finds out that the mayor of Chicago is no longer supporting him in the race for governor. Cut that scene there and just go, oh, what a shock for that guy. How horrible for him. But you know what? We've got more time to fill until the next set of tits comes. So let's have him explain every single bit of that. That's a generous, fair, non-judgmental. They just bury me alone. So what if you went and talked to him? Really sell it, sell it! He committed himself one way or the other. Maybe he just needs you to ask for his help. You really do want to see me suck cock, don't you? No subtext. <laughs> it's Game of Thrones. Lots of people like it. You as good with a sphere as you used to be? No, but I'm still better than you. <laughs> I know what I'm putting you through. Thank you for saying yes. I only ask you because I need you. You're a loyal friend. You hear me? A loyal friend. The last one I've got. I hope I'll serve you well. You will. Pompey Magna! Sorry, I'll just... Now, in that scene, I'm not sure if you could tell, but the king was asking a favour of his friend uh, and could only ask that favour of his friend because he was loyal. It was subtle. <laughs> it was under... It was really underneath... And then here is a scene from uh, Star Wars The Phantom Menace. <laughs> I have a question concerning your friend and co-consul, the darling of Venus, Gaius Julius Caesar. Why does his chair remain empty? Why does he not come home? His illegal war is over. Gaul is long since on its knees. Why does Caesar keep his brave soldiers from their families and friends? For eight long years, he has gorged himself like a wolf on the blood of Gaul, and thereby made himself monstrously rich. Still going? Yeah, yeah, but, but Yoda's going to show up any second now. Oh, right. the mob with racism fights and gaudy feasts. Why has he paid the debts of every reprobate fool in this Senate House? I tell you why he does these things. He wants to buy himself a crown. He wants to destroy the Republic and rule Rome as a bloody tyrant. Now, the, the whole of... Uh, is my mic still on, Jay? Is that better? Yeah? The whole of uh, season one of Rome is covered by... I don't know if you've heard of a playwright, William Shakespeare. Um, the first three pages of Julius Caesar... Covers the whole of season one of Rome. Just, and the, and the, all of Rome that isn't sex and violence is just bits like that. It's just bits about, oh, Julius Caesar wants power. We won't let him have power, but he wants power. But so we if won't you just let him come out power. tonight just to slag off all the shows that, that we're covering, is that your thing? Isn't that what... That, that, was that, was was that, that the thing? No, was, I thought it wasn't a thing. Was that the brief? <laughs> Pick oh, shows that you don't like. Oh, that's gone wrong. Pick shows that... <laughs> 
Also, I think you oh. know, anyone can pick the bits and make it look boring. Yeah. You know, you can make Mad Men look like it's just about couches and dresses and stuff. But there's also bad bits oh. to Mad Men as well. <laughs> I love Mad Men. <laughs> See, clearly, I, I think there's value in these shows. I, I, I do. I think there's value in these shows, but I don't think it's in the storytelling. I think it's in the sex and violence. I think the value is in the porn of it. You watch these shows to get off. It excites you. Uh, it's, it's fun. Uh, you go, ooh, yeah. It's, and it's mindless entertainment uh, to the extent that two of these shows are about gladiatorial-style battles. You've got Spartacus. You've got Rome. Uh, and they're just, they're just about violence for violence's sake or sex for sex's sake. Uh, but that's, you know, that's what I think about it. John, I don't know. You haven't seen any of these shows. Oh, I've watched Spartacus. And Game of Thrones. You liked slash hated <laughs> oh, Game of Thrones. Oh, God, I've never seen Game of Thrones. Um, uh, uh, sorry, we always mentioned before, on the podcast we do, every three weeks someone tells me what I think of Game of Thrones. And, and one day I will watch it, which will be quite nice. <laughs> um, but, but, I mean, yeah, I, I, I definitely would defend Spartacus because it's, like you're saying, but it's fun. It's a fun it's, show. It's a fun show. And actually Spartacus, having had to watch more of it for, for this, just to find all the dirty bits... Uh, <laughs> Spartacus actually has a really great story about economic strife and, uh, and addiction to gambling and, and that sort of thing. Sure, in their time, if you had an addiction to gambling, you bought yourself a slave and then you bet on him to kill other people. But still, it's an addiction. Well, it's still better than Pact of the Rafters, though, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> Do you remember that storyline in Pact of the Rafters? They really didn't go... All the, uh, no, yeah, that went, worked, that went it weird. It went very, very, yeah. very Eric badly. Thomas looked uncomfortable. I know, and they ended up dating, and then <laughs> yeah. they bought a Anyways, house. Anyways, so... Uh, now it's time for other people to talk about their theories of these shows. Our first one is Dr Johnny Baker, who is... Uh, oh, I had a title. Oh, there it is. See? See? There it is. She's real now, Jane. She's, yeah. Real. She's got a doctorate and everything. Yeah. Uh, she's, uh, she, she's an author uh, of a PhD thesis entitled Broadcast Space, TV, Culture, Myth and Star Trek. Uh, for the research of that, uh, Joymi had to watch every single episode of Star Trek ever made and available. Is that correct? Yeah. And enjoyed it. So, you know, that's, that, that's a plus. 700 more than 700 episodes. How many exactly? I think Choi may actually just watched them and then to excuse it wrote a book about it. Ah. <laughs> I think it worked the other way around. <laughs> uh, she's, a, she, she's a great speaker and has, has lots of uh, interesting thoughts. I want to hear more of them. Please welcome Dr. Joey Baker. You can, you can stand, you can stand wherever you want or you can sit. All right. You do whatever you want. Lounge. lounge? Yeah, don't lie on it. Okay. Um, I wanted to read some reviews of the show that I'm going to mostly talk about. Splendidly acted melodrama delivers a bloody good time, delivering enough political intrigue, violence and sex to slake even the most debauched viewing appetites. Excellent work with slit throats, severed limbs, pagan rituals and barbaric sexual acts. Ben-Hur meets Sopranos with a touch of Mean Streets thrown in. Ingenious amalgam of hardcore history and yummy soap opera with lots of violence and sex. Think of it as Iclodius on steroids and Viagra. <laughs> I'd rather not think of Iclodius <laughs> on steroids and Viagra. <laughs> uh, I am, of course, talking about Rome, which has already been slated by a certain judge. <laughs> I will take issue mm. with you. Please do. I used the same picture. <laughs> you did use the same picture. We did not coordinate no. on picture use. Um, it got 7 million uh, weekly viewers in the US in its time. 
um, but it got axed for the second season because it also cost HBO, BBC $100 million per season. Um, they filmed it on 35mm with multiple cameras. Um, it's basically the, the same thing you'd get on a feature film. So very, very um, high industry um, costs. And they built these very elaborate sets. Instead of just you know, building facades, they built actual Roman buildings. You know, it's extremely reckless with the money. And they said no. Um, so I did get cut. I wanted to... Um, I won seven Emmys in its time, too. So some people loved it. Some other reviews. <laughs> other reviews. Unnecessary sadistic glimpses. Crude and unsubtle. Boldest sensibate ever attempted. These are not actually for Rome. These are for some sword and sandals of an earlier era. Namely, um, some early Cecil B. DeMille flicks. Manslaughter from 1922 and Sign of the Cross from 1932. Um, we have a bit of an orgy. We have someone's head being crushed by an elephant. I tried to get the scene where the dwarf was being skewered and held up by a sword, but no, I could not get that one. But uh, very sad. Don't offer it if you can't show. Yeah, well, I know. I know. Oh, yeah, you can talk, Mr. Shield. Yeah, well, that's right. That's right. Um, so these films are both before um, a censorship code came in in Hollywood, which was enforced in 1934, as also obviously before the ratings period, which didn't come in until 68. Um, and they got a lot away with an awful lot, which is partly why the code came in. But particularly in this genre, because even though these purported to be, you know, moralistic tales of how terrible those Romans were, let's show you just how terrible they were <laughs> in all its details so that you know how terrible they were and you won't repeat that mistake. Um, manslaughter in particular was um, about the hedonistic jazzier and, and uh, that has this completely incongruous cut back to the Roman era to show how our youth of today is, is being led astray and we'll end up like Romans in an orgy such as this and how terrible that was. Um, so in some ways I would argue that this kind of sword and sandal genre has gone through one of that, those cycles that you were talking about of, of it's not just a matter of these getting more violent and more sexy. They were actually quite sexy and quite violent in those early days and that was really, really hemmed down on with the censorship. And gradually the violence kind of got picked up. And if you, if you look at sort of the sword and sandal kind of films like Troy, boring, um, <laughs> or Clash of the Titans or um, 300, a lot of violence, not so much on the sex. So it's like the violence has come back, but the sex has kind of stayed. So I'd argue some of those early epics have got more sex in them for the era. If you think of, you know, in the context of the 20s or the 30s. Um, and in that sense, um, it's really on TV that this genre has come into its own in bringing those elements back together again, I'd argue. Um, so, uh, Rome is vaguely based on some uh, real events, but they have focused in on characters who only have very small amounts known about them so that they can make them do all dastardly deeds that they weren't supposed to have done. So this is um, Atia of the Julia. She was a real person, but she was supposed to be a very respectable lady and an exemplary mother, which she is not in Rome. Um, Servilia, very little known about her, but she was Caesar's lover. Um, up the top, Antonia and Mark Antony, who were married. Um, in real life, they had, were supposed to have quite a nice marriage. Thank you very much, until Cleopatra came along. Home Yes, I know, I know brazen tart um, but in this not so uh, Mark Anthony is actually in love with her mother of course um, and the main sort of other protagonists we have are Titus Pullo and Lucius Verinus who were real soldiers but they're mentioned only briefly in Caesar's conquest of Gaul 
and um, Caesar writes that there were these two really brave centurions. And normally he doesn't talk about um, the kind of plebe lower underlings. He normally only talks about important people. But he, he takes the time to mention that there was these two centurions um, named Pullo and Varinus, and they were always disputing who was the better soldier, and I'm better than you, and I'm better than you, always trying to outdo each other on the battlefield, always trying to find the most suicidal part of the battle to go in and prove themselves, but in fact end up saving each other's life um, on, on a few different occasions uh, when the other one is looked like they're doomed. So kind of that loyalty thing, even though they were supposed to be fierce enemies. And he's only writes for the first three paragraphs and they become these major characters because you can do whatever you like with them then. You know, you can say, well, they're historical, but we don't know the rest. We can just sort of fill in the gaps. And so, which is good because, you know, who wants to be bored with whether it's correct or not? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so which brings me to the Titus Pullo School of Winning Over Women. Um, and Jay will have the first clip, please. Of course, your best method of pleasing a woman is the warm beating heart of an enemy. I mean, women will say they don't like it, but they do. Makes them wet as October. That doesn't answer. Well, Ferdinand, talk to her. Talk? What? It doesn't matter. It's all about the tone of the voice. Pretend you're putting a saddle on a skittish horse. Shh, come now. You know, that sort of thing. And that's all. What else? Oh, tell her she's beautiful all the time. Tell her she's beautiful every time you see her, even when she's not. And what else? Oh, also, very important. When you couple with her, there's a spot just above her cunning. It's like a little button. Now, attend to that button, and she will open up like a flower. How do you know this about All women have them. <laughs> Ask anyone. So these are kind of the idiot plebs of the lower class. So they do this kind of upstairs-downstairs thing in, in Rome with these, these two. So the first start is understanding some basic anatomy. Then rescue your love interest from slavery, from a cruel master. Enslave her yourself. I know that doesn't seem like the logical next step for winning her over, but bear with me, this is sort of the long haul. Um, impregnate a foreign leader. Optional step in the Titus Pullo series of events. And then free her from slavery and earn her gratitude. And Jay, we'll have the next clip, please. You ready? Come over here. I want to talk to you. Leave it to me. I've been to the registrar of slaves. You're no longer my slave. You sold me? Oh, please, don't sell me. Don't send me away. I beg you. I'm setting you free. You're free. It says so here. <laughs> oh, thank you. You're the kindest man alive. <laughs> I love you, sir. I love you, sir. Here, here. Um, it's a dress. Um, go try it on. Let's see how it looks. Thank you enough. Thank me? What do you thank me for, boy? Freeing her. 
<laughs> we have been saving to buy our freedom, but we never... Um, to happen so soon, I cannot tell you what a gift it is. You've both been saving? You and already? We had thought to take the Verinos name as ours when we became free men, but Irene says it must be under your name she becomes my wife. What? A legal wife, I mean. We are already married in our hearts. Irene? Irene? Sir? So the Titus Pullo version of Winning Over Your Woman is not going so well in this show. Um, frees her from slavery, then brutally kills the man she really loves, thus um, winning her undying love. Strangely... It's just like Cyrano. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. Um, but uh, fans of the show, I mean, Pullo is a character that, that you become very sympathetic with. Uh, we're very sympathetic to him, despite this. I guess I can overlook the fact Pullo c- killed someone, the, the fans say, it was a different time back then, and he has redeeming qualities. Poor Pullo, he's lost without Verinus, and in one way and the other, in the past, he killed for honour. I don't condone that he whacked Irani's fiancé, but since then, he's become come a thug, and I can't condone the murder of Rani's fiancé whatsoever, but I pitied him anyhow. Poor old Pullo. Poor old Pullo. Um, and another one says, I really get him. He can act, he's funny, and he's hot. <laughs> <laughs> But it's funny, when I was talking to people, you know, saying, oh, what are you doing at the moment? Oh, I'm working on Rome. This is the scene that people talked about, not the really bloodthirsty ones later on in the arena, which I'll show a clip from if we get time, but this scene. And I think it's because this is a character we're supposed to feel sympathetic for, even though he's an oaf. And that moment of violence becomes sort of so out of left field. Um, and, you know, he does sort of get redemption later on. He, he seeks redemption at a shrine. Uh, he apologises to Irini for killing a man. He says, I know I didn't start us off on the right foot killing your man and all. <laughs> Whoops. And then she accepts him as her husband, as you do. <laughs> um, Ladies. Yes, that's <laughs> yeah, right. That's right. Um, Is that not I think, creepy? Yeah, it, it, it doesn't just, seem creepy. Just, just, just a tad okay. creepy, yeah. yeah. And the, the thing was that it didn't strike me as creepy when I was watching it because I did actually get into this character. It was only when I came to it thinking... No, that really is creepy. How can I not have noticed how creepy that is? Um, and I guess the thing is that Irene is a freed slave. She's a foreigner. She doesn't have anyone looking after her. She's got very limited options in this kind of world. 
Um, but the show doesn't really kind of highlight that, whereas for Niobe, who's Varinus's wife, it really goes to lengths to show that how hemmed in she is by the society, the fact that she has very limited choices and, you know, she has to make the best of what she's got. Irene, we don't get that. It's just like, well, it's Pullo. Of course you forgive Pullo. Everyone loves Pullo. Don't matter that he murdered the man you love. Um, so I, I, I sort of wonder if, to that extent, it kind of lets uh, this violence off the hook and lets the violent men, male characters, off the hook. Um, and as I said, it, it's a completely different kind of uh, violence that we get in the gladiatorial scenes, which is all about redemption through violence, that... that He's got to, sunk to an all-time low. He's become a hitman after this because Irini says, no, I don't want anything to do with you before she decides to marry him. Marina says, I don't want anything to do with you. You've killed someone in front of my children. You've destroyed my slave. Uh, but he redeems himself by killing more people. So we'll have the scene, Jay. Stand up and fight. I don't want to. That's not how it works. You're supposed to resist. Not if I don't want to. I just want to die, all right? So come ahead and kill me and be done with it. Bollocks! Move! What's wrong with you? Where's your dignity? Oi, soldier! Wake up! Why don't you come here and suck my cock? Look to hold your sword. Just stand up and hold it, that's all. You don't have to run about or anything. You're not but a bloody molly. You and the whole 13th, not but bloody mollies. Don't talk to the 13th. <laughs> all right. I piss on the 13th. <laughs> Pigs born all of them. Why don't you and the 13th all line up? And suck my... There might be a bit of blood. the audience in the arena here because they get annoyed with him that he won't fight and go no no thumbs down what's the point of a show like this if the gladiator says no I'm not going to fight no I'm sorry I'm not going to have it in it well that's why you've tuned in we, we are this, this baying audience baying for blood in a sense um, and this becomes all very heroic and Varinus in the moment is going to come in and fight with his mate we might cut it there, Jay, that's fine. So he crawls around and Varinus comes in and, and, and helps save him and they both 
sever heads and limbs and whatever, and they, they leave arm in arm, and it's all very bromance and lovely. But uh, he redeems himself by, by killing more people, so it's lovely there. Um, in other parts of the story, though, um, the violence is what we don't see. So there's a torture scene with Sevilla, who's pictured here. We don't actually see much of the torture. What we hear is her cries through the house while the servants go, what the fuck's going on here? Which is quite effective, um, I think, because we have to fill in the gaps of what on earth is happening to this poor woman until the servant who is in, in, uh, in being charged with uh, undertaking the torture says, I'm not going to do any more, I'm not a fucking animal, which is a paraphrase of a line from Spartacus where they want to watch him having sex with a slave girl, and he says, no, I'm not an animal. So it's that sort of thing of, well... No, I'm not an animal. No, 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 I'm not an animal. I'm not joining him. No. Oh, I'm disappointed. So it's kind of the irony of this, this genre. It's, it's critical of Roman debasement, but that's exactly why people are tuning in, because they want to see the Roman debasement. That's, that's what this sort of genre is, is um, based upon. And so, in a sense, is, is uh, HBO Cable that, that um, finance this. It's, it's joint between HBO and BBC. Um, its slogan is, it's not TV, which is partly to do with the quality of, you know, 35mm and multiple cameras and big extensive. But it's also, you know, because you expect to see sex and violence and that's what you're paying up for. Um, to get that subscription, it's not dependent on advertisers. They want media hype of something controversial. Oh, my goodness, there's so much sex and violence. That's what they want because that will get the subscribers in. And then they can set, sell the lovely box set so you can watch this in an epic fashion, one after another or after another. So that slogan of it's not TV, I think, is actually probably pretty accurate in the sense that that, that format of delivery allows them that, that leg room. Um, is it... Is it too much? Uh, this is James Perfue. I don't think this is too much of James. <laughs> Mary McNamara of Los Angeles Times complained that HBO is becoming a bit tiresome with this, that it's just kind of lazy and sexist to have all these background tits for no particular reason. And she sort of cited Rome, Sopranos, Deadwood, Borgward Empire, Game of Thrones. It's sort of, sort of gratuitous use of particularly female nudity. We get a lot of male nudity in Rome as well. Um, and, you know, this is a genre that always has put men's bodies on display, but usually for violence. But in Rome, they also get put on display for sex. But it's still um, sex and nudity for power games. It's not actually just to have background, say, Game of Thrones, I think, is guilty of that, I think. But Rome, less so. So this is my lazy and sexist wallpaper of gratuitous <laughs> nudity of James, just because I wanted to. Um, and slaves of both gender are the wallpaper of Rome. So it's about class more, more so than, than, than gender. Um, the only thing I would say that really annoys me about Rome, if this is Rome, why is it so straight? It's unbelievably so. Um, why is it so straight? It's because it's contemporary America and not really ancient Rome at all. Um, we have, this is, I didn't bother showing the scene because it's a few seconds and it's intercut with other things. Supposedly a lesbian affair so hot that Sevilla can convince Octavia to have incestuous sex with her brother uh, in order to get some information from her. Well, the hottest thing in this lesbian sex scene that I could find, two scenes of Sevilla's finger running down Octavia's torso towards her lady bits. Oh, my God, that's so outrageous. How could that's, they do that? That's, that's how ladies do it. Oh, is it? <laughs> oh. See? And, oh. 
And Sevilla keeps her clothes on the whole time. <laughs> that just makes it hotter. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly, exactly. Um, and there's no gay male sex at all. There's sort of references, you know, Atia says that Mark Antony buggers boys for breakfast. Um, Octavia is offered boys and girls when he goes to um, uh, have sex for the first time among some slaves. And Atia is pleased when she has a, hears a rumour that her son is sleeping with Julius Caesar because she's hoping it will get the family ahead. Um, that was a bad use of words. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, that's one thing that, that really annoyed me about the, the series. It's surely, of all places, Rome, you could have, you could have all this sort of decadence. And it's really so puritanically straight. Um, so, in a way, going back to these early epics, um, this is from Sign of the Cross where good little Christian girl, they're trying to get lead her astray, so they bring, us, bring in the hottest lesbian they can find. She does this little sexy dance and kisses her and everything. And you can see that, that kid, it's like the look on her face is kind of like, this is really hard for me to not be tempted by this. This is kind of racier than what was on Rome, for goodness sake, <laughs> in terms of, you know, a bit of lesbian action. Um, so I guess that comes back to the whole thing of this, these things do go in cycles and just because we're getting a lot of explicit violence or a lot of explicit sex, I'm more interested in what kind of violence, what kind of sex and what the context is. Like why is a gladiatorial scene like that, that that's something we all pay for and we're rooting for Polo. Um, but in another context, in a way that scene with Polo killing the slave isn't as explicit but it's still shocking mm. because of the context of it. So sometimes I think it's not actually the visual aspect of it, but what that context is. Paul is a... He is an ignorant bully. Yes. And he is the most sympathetic character in <laughs> Yes. Well, I think so, probably. I, I think so as yeah, well. Yeah. I, he's... He's sort of the everyman caught up in these bigger things that he doesn't quite understand. And their, and their relationship, the, the friends... Yeah, yeah. ..is kind of the most interesting thing to, to watch in Rome. Mm. Like, if it was just their show... Yes. If it was, if it was a buddy comedy <laughs> of, uh, you know, oh, no, your wife has had another man's child. <laughs> that, that kind of thing. After you've been away for eight years. No, oh, the slut. The slut. Her first thing is, uh, I thought you were dead, not my child. Uh, it's my 13-year-old daughter. Mm-hmm. Oh, I have to come back to your, yes. your senatorial um, uh, clip. There. Yes. The, the, um, the first three episodes of Rome, um, they re-edited for, because it's a BBC HBO um, combined effort, they re-edited those uh, three episodes into two for the British audiences so they could cut out some of that senatorial oh. stuff. And the director was furious. He said, oh, now that's all that's left is sex and violence. <laughs> that's why people watch the show. <laughs> and he was so full of moral indignation. Actually, I wanted to ask about that, because the thing about the audience, which I'm about for you. So, so, you know, this, for example, these films were sold on the idea that I'm meant to go there saying, oh, how terrible, how judgmental, that's or right. thinking, four. Yeah, right. Whereas now, what, what is the audience watching Rome thinking? Like, are we coming in for it, going... For because like, it's not judging them, is it? Like, no. These were these, these were very judgmental. These sorts of yeah. Sort well, I think we are the crowd in the arena. You know, we, we want the we want a good show. We want a good mm-hmm. good um, uh, battle. But um, the the scene where he says I'm I'm not an animal when he refuses to torture her anymore. I think that's kind of a double take on on the torturer, but also us as an audience are saying, really, do you really want us to go there? Mm-hmm. Uh, what's that cut off point where before we say you? That's 
not entertaining anymore. That's and just And if yucky. Rome was taking place in a, in a contemporary, mm. if, it, yeah, if all this stuff was having impact to the rafters, yeah. <laughs> do you think? I mean, do you think the whole point is that that we do see this Rome as being a pretend Rome, like this is? A, oh yeah. Because well, I can't watch Sopranos, for example. If it's, was, it's contemporary violence, if this is, I, I find that too squeamish. Mm-hmm. But ye oldie violence and cartoony ye oldie violence, that's that's fine with me. I can do that. So yeah, I think it's different, a different thing. So in, here's the thing about uh, about Sopranos and uh, and the, the violence in that. There is a scene in Sopranos where. Uh, he, he goes, he hunts down a man who has, uh, who has uh, given evidence against the mob. Mm. And Tony finds him, finds him in a, in a small town and uh, strangles him to death over like two minutes, mm. showing how hard it is to actually kill a man. Like it is, it is very difficult, it takes a lot, of, uh, a, a lot of effort. And... And so there is, there is emotion in that and there is something in that that makes us reflect on all the violence that we mm. watch on television and, and all the deaths that we see on television week after week. Uh, whereas this does not, none of that. This is, mm. as you say, it is just the, the gladiatorial scenes. It mm. is just... It, it still is. It's porn. Yeah, well, I don't think... Yeah, well, the thing is with the lesbian scenes, if, if it did the porn thing of having the token lesbian thing, I'd probably be criticising it for that as well. So it's a bit, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't. But, yeah, it is violence porn. Yeah. 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 People get off on it. Yeah, that's right. Which is the, and the excitement. The... Well, even the actors, because the, the uh, arena scene... Um, uh, they, they filmed in continuity because there was just so much blood and decapitation and stuff that they couldn't just do scenes. You know, normally things are filmed not in order. So to film something, a, a very extensive scene in continuity is very rare, but they had to do that because they didn't... Well, how can we get that, that blood splatter exactly the same as it was in the phrase? And uh, the actors, especially the one who plays Pulo, um, gave the interview saying, it, it is exhilarating. You've got all these extras who are actually there. They're not, like, digitally added in later, as we say, getting Spartacus or something. Mm. But they're, they're there, and they're getting whipped up, and they are kind of like... You, you're faking the decapitations and stuff, but um, the actors did their own fighting. They didn't get doubles in to do the fighting. So, so the, you get pumped. Since the crowd is cheering your name and you're holding up your sword and you go, hey, I am the, the warrior. <laughs> <laughs> totally delusional. But yeah, so, you know, so they were saying sort of like they could see how, I mean, that's just play acting. Mm-hmm. Imagine if that was kind of the real deal. What, what I find most interesting about what, what you're saying, Jamie, is, is that you liked Rome yes. and still I'm right. <laughs> so I, I, I want to know if, if, if someone can, can prove me wrong which is why we've uh, got Emily Maguire here, John mm-hmm. hopefully she can uh, prove me wrong she's uh, an award winning writer, novelist whose uh, articles and essays on sex, religion, culture and literature have been published widely including Sydney Morning Herald, Financial Review, The Observer and The Age she's been on radio and television including the First Tuesday Book Club which I'm not sure when that's on, sometime in the month. Yeah. Uh, Late Line, uh, which you can live tweet now, and uh, Life Matters and The Book. Uh, we've got, I've got her name, Jay. I've written her name on a, on a sign. It's just... Oh, Emily Maguire? Yeah, Emily oh, Maguire. Oh, right, sorry. sorry that's, <laughs> now we know. Sorry, yeah, sorry yeah, yeah. I said Emily Maguire. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, she's uh, got a new novel coming out in September called Fishing for Tigers, which she finished two weeks ago. Uh, please welcome Emily McGuire. Now you, you don't have to sit, you can stand if you want, you do whatever you want. 
go with the crowd. Okay. <laughs> I'm really happy that you just started speaking right at the end there about the difference between um, our reaction to violence in contemporary setting, because that's pretty much what I'm going to talk all about now. Um, and I'm mostly going to talk about Dexter, which is one of my favourite shows, and I absolutely love it. Um, and I have from the start, even though I have lots and lots of problems about it, and for me, part of the enjoyment of a show like that is picking on lots of things and talking about what I would have done differently and better. <laughs> but anyway, in the, in the very first episode of Dexter, at the very first crime scene that we um, see him attending, um, we hear his voiceover saying, there's something strange and disarming about looking at a homicide scene in the daylight of Miami. It makes the most grotesque killings look staged, like you're in a new and daring section of Disney World. Now, as it turns out, the body he's about to see has been very carefully staged by the killer, but that line of his really got me thinking uh, about the way that we as an audience respond to screen violence, um, how that might be affected by the setting. Um, I mean, I think he's certainly right. Mutilated bodies do seem out of place in sunny Miami. But is there anywhere really where they don't look out of place? <laughs> um, and I actually had never seen Rome before, so now I'd say, well, in Rome. Um, but what I did think of... <laughs> What I did think of, which is along similar lines, was Game of Thrones, which I had just really recently watched over a single weekend, right after I finished my novel, actually. It was this intense, jet-lagged weekend of watching all of Game of Thrones. And the setting, basically, there is a tinkered-with version of medieval England, a few supernatural effects around the edges. But it was a terribly brutal time to be alive, and pretty much everybody is in danger pretty much all of the time from one thing or another. So, really, if there was any world fictional or real in which mutilated bodies would seem ordinary, then it would probably be Game of Thrones. But then as I re-watched Dexter in preparation for this, um, I realised that it actually contains far more corpses killed in more creatively horrible ways than Game of Thrones does, yet it still somehow seemed reasonable to me to describe Games of Thrones as a world characterised by violence and brutality, whereas the world in Dexter is meant to be pretty much our world. Um, and so the violence and brutality is meant to be some kind of aberration and interruption to the normal way of things. The first thing, though, to notice about Dexter is that even though it's realistic in the sense that it's set in our time, roughly this world, no supernatural elements, it does present violence in a really stylized way. Um, and there's a narrative reason for that. It's because Dexter is our guide through this world and we see most of the violence through his eyes and he's enamoured with murder. I mean, he, he sees what he does as a killer as fulfilling a need, but he also treats it as an art and a craft and is quite proud of his skill. And we also see crimes committed by other people in that show mostly through his weird filter. He works as a forensic blood splatter expert, so we go with him to crime scenes. And while we do see a great deal of dead bodies throughout, there's actually not as much blood and gore as you might expect. And many of the scenes where Dexter's actually working as a blood splatter expert, are actually blood-free. And we've got a clip for you now showing exactly what I'm talking about here. No, probably a very sharp knife. Look at the blood splatter, look at the patterns. It tells a story. You see this big pond of blood right there? That's from the initial stab. The male victim was standing right here, and the killer plunged his knife into the shoulder, severing the carotid artery, and <clears throat> notice the long, thick, heavy drips? Yeah. Now over here, you have nice, clean sprays of blood, and that can only happen when you're holding something light and moving quick. 
Nice sharp slices through the body, no splashes, no drips. Clean and easy. This guy knew how to use a blade. So we're looking for a sushi chef. Yeah, sushi chef is possible. Wouldn't be my first choice, but hey, you never know. Now what? Now I eat. <laughs> so you just can't possibly imagine a scene like that in Game of Thrones. Um, not only because there's no such thing as forensics, but because the entire world in Game of Thrones, not just the battlefields, but people's homes, their bedrooms, their dining room tables, are all really, really dirty all the time. <laughs> and they're smeared with all kinds of body fluids, um, evidence of the fact that human beings are animals. You know, it's this dirty, carnal, physical world. And so violence, when it happens, doesn't seem that unexpected. And the results of that violence don't actually stand out the way they would in this clean, white, minimalist room, like where Dexter gets to erect his um, blood splatter art installations. Um, I've got another two clips I want to show you now. The first is from Dexter, the second is from Game of Thrones. I think there's some really interesting similarities here to look out for, and one really big difference. If we can see those now. Nice haircut, Masuka. Sorry, sister. Damn, looking hot. Yeah, she should. It's hot as hell out here. So, uh, why are you here? It's a crime scene? Yeah. Need a blessed bag. So? So? There's no blood here. What was that? Yeah. There's no blood in or on or near the body at all. It's the weirdest thing you ever saw. Hey, Angel. Let's show him. No blood. No sticky, hot, messy, awful blood. No blood at all. Why hadn't I thought of that? No blood. What a beautiful idea. How does he do it? How does the killer get rid of the blood? It's hard to say. The body's in good shape. She got a nice ass, too. Head is over there if you want to take a look. <laughs> this is unique. No shit. And no prints either. <laughs> I've never seen such clean, dry, neat-looking dead flesh. Savages. One lot steals a goat from another lot, but you know they're ripping each other to pieces. I've never seen wildlings do a thing like this. I've never seen a thing like this, not every in my life. How close did you get? Close as any man would. We should head back to the wall. Do the dead frighten you? Our orders were to track the wildlings. We tracked them. They won't trouble us no more. You don't think he'll ask us how they died? Get back on your horse. 
Whatever did it to them could do it to us. They even killed the children. It's a good thing we're not children. You want to run away south, run away. Of course, they will behead you as a deserter if I don't catch you first. Get back on your horse. I won't say it again. So I don't know if you all managed to notice in the background in that first clip from Dexter, the sign in the background actually says, no open sores in pool, <laughs> um, which is about as perfect a reminder that human beings are just rotting, seeping bags of flesh that <laughs> I can imagine. Um, but the main thing with those two scenes is the symmetry between them. They both have these carefully arranged, mutilated, um, bloodless or appearing bloodless victims, and they both have three men whose job it is to actually investigate and find and deal with death and danger. But to me, the thing that had the biggest impact is, is the difference in the attitudes of these three men. In Game of Thrones, we have a world which is totally, everyone accepts that it's this incredibly brutal world, and yet at least one of the men, the one who'd seen the bodies, is, is shaken and horrified and terrified. In Dexter, a world which is supposedly civilised and where violence is an aberration, we have men bantering about hot chicks and the nice ass on the corpse. Which makes me feel that that is indeed the much more brutal world. Um, now, obviously, there's another big difference because in the Game of Thrones clip, that guy's terrified it's going to happen to him. He's in real present danger. And the other thing is that the guys in Dexter are cops. They're used to these scenes. We all know about, you know, um, gallows humour and the things you do so you, you're not in trauma at every scene. But in a way, that's the point. Um, that scene from Dexter, that's the first body that's found in the series. But as it goes on you find that this is really commonplace for these guys to be coming across bodies like this. And it may look staged or surreal in this backdrop of sunny Miami, but it, it is so unremarkable as to not provoke the slightest horror in the people finding these bodies. And again, as we proceed, we find that horrific crimes are, are not at all remarkable. Um, in the first episode alone, we've got Dexter tracking a potential victim um, who frequents a website called Scream Bitch Scream. Uh, and it's strongly implied that this site isn't one of a kind and it's not just visited by psycho killers. We also learn that Dexter's girlfriend, Rita, was repeatedly bashed and raped by her ex-husband. And we're told that Dexter's sister, Deb, met Rita on a routine domestic violence call-out, which is a reminder that women and children being beaten up in their own homes is routine. Um, and we also learn about a choir master who's been assaulting and murdering boys for years. That's all in the first episode. Um, and hundreds and hundreds of more examples as the series goes on. And these are all, well, most of them, aside from the main big arc crimes um, that are going on. The beatings and murders that happen in Miami associated with drug or um, gang crime are just so ordinary, they barely warrant investigation with the police. They're like background noise. And then throughout it all, Dexter has no trouble at all finding his victims. And his criteria for his victims is that they are themselves killers. And um, he has no trouble finding killers who are wandering around with no one doing anything about it in order to kill. And, of course, we have Dexter himself, who's our guide through this world, and he repeatedly refers to himself as one of a kind, even as it becomes increasingly evident that he's not. Um, in, in terms of his specific behaviour, that he hunts and kills people in this really focused, ritualised manner, well, yes, he's unusual. Um, but I think, to me, one of the most brilliant aspects of the show is the dawning realisation as you watch that 
his thought patterns and his ideas about the world and mostly his ideas about himself and his place in the world are not unusual at all. You know, like probably most people, he has violent impulses that he needs to learn to contain. He has dark, terrible thoughts. He has weird fetishes. And all along he fears that his loved ones and colleagues will, will turn on him and hate him if they see the truth of who he is. So really, in his inherent violence and, and inner darkness, he's actually quite normal. Um, if we could just see the next clip now, um, this again is from Game of Thrones and it stars Eddard Stark, who's probably the closest thing to a hero, a clear-cut hero the show has. I know I broke my oath. I know I'm a deserter. I should have gone back to the war and won but I saw what I saw. I saw the White Walkers. Me tonight. If you get word to my family, tell them I'm no coward. Tell them I'm sorry. have this man who's in the world of the show a really good man um, who beheads another man for breaking a law. Um, his sons have to watch because they too have to learn to be okay with this kind of justified murder. Um, and the youngest boy wins approval for not having any kind of visible squeamishness and it's immediately easy to imagine how someone like Dexter or even his police colleagues um, would fit right in to this brutal world and would have been really great and effortless heroes. Um, and indeed, context be damned, many viewers do see Dexter as a hero. And within the world of the show, when his whole murdering career up to that point, all of the cut-up criminals he's disposed within the harbour are discovered, and word gets out that there's a vigilante killer in Miami, the ordinary people of the city, or many of them anyway, do declare him a great hero. They don't know it's Dexter, but they declare the vigilante killer a great hero. And it's just fascinating that you have all these people going about their lives in this seemingly civilised, very similar to our world, and they're baying for blood in the name of justice. Um, now, I did want to kind of talk about sex in Dexter because, you know, the theme of the show is, is sex and violence tonight. Um, but unfortunately, as I started to look at all the references and scenes of sex, I found that it's actually inextricably entwined with violence in this show, which is, which is quite depressing. But um, again, I'd kind of look at the context, think again of a show like Game of Thrones or, as you were talking about, Rome, and the context of this kind of world, patriarchy, extremely brutal times, you'd expect a certain level of um, 
sexual violence and misogyny to happen, and indeed we get it. In Game of Thrones, we have young girls sold and traded into marriage, raped on their wedding night, uh, spoils of war for any invading army are just assumed to be women. Um, women who have sex outside of their probably unchosen marriage are vilified, as are their bastard children, and for lower-class women without noble blood, often um, selling sex is, is their only opportunity to survive. But again, it's the time, so we all accept that. Um, but then we've got the world of Dexter, which is meant to be our world, pretty much, um, and enlightened, some would say, post-feminist era. Um, women hold positions of power. There are plenty of powerful women in this show, um, and those positions of power are based on their skill, not on their bloodline or sex appeal. Um, and the women are not at the mercy of men for, for survival or anything like that. So you'd think we could expect a kind of a different environment in terms of the, the relationship between sex and violence. Um, so I've just got two clips from the show to show you now. Tell me. I, I can't do this. That's okay. That's okay. I'm okay. We have an elephant in the room and his name is Sex. Tell me as far as I'm concerned, you could just stay in the corner and mind its own damn business. It's easier said than done. What did they use, an axe? It's blood force. See the way the hits caved in? Hmm. You guys check out the Nahadi Magadas and dispatch yet? She's a butterface. <sighs> What's a butterface? You know, Pompeia, she's got a hot body, but a face. How great would it be to pull a bronco on her? Yeah? Yeah? Yeah. Miraki, you do it doggy style, right? And just when she's getting into it, you grab her by the hips and you yell another woman's name and BAM! You're riding her like a bronco because she's trying to buck you off. Many times in life I feel like I'm missing some essential piece of the human puzzle. This is one of them. What? No. Not bronco? See, Socio, she knows. I just got my first official homicide call. He's back. Who's back? The ice truck killer? That's right. Won't believe where he left the body. Okay, so that first clip was poor old Rita, who, who is um, so traumatised by her past of being beaten and raped that, that she can't have sex. And there were actually six or seven clips I could have chosen, not just of her, but of other characters, including um, Deb, the sister in that second clip later on in the second series, uh, who go through similar trauma. And it's a repeated theme that comes up and up and even actually drives the whole arc in season five. Um, and then that second clip there is just showing the, the good guys, the guys that we need to trust to catch the guys who are doing this stuff to people like Rita and um, the way they talk about women. Um, 
So, I mean, I, I just find it interesting, the context. In Game of Thrones, this brutality, we accept it. It's self-evident. We say it's the times. Um, we watch it, I think, and we do get more of a thrill out of it because we can feel detached from that violence a bit, um, safe in the assurance that our world isn't like that. Um, Dexter, though, is, is actually a lot darker um, because it, it's easy to take it more personally, uh, despite its attempts to, to distance us um, through seeing things through Dexter's eyes. Um, it's actually a world as brutal as any in Game of Thrones or Rome, um, but the brutality is disguised by this veneer of modern life that we have. But the reality is, is very different. And, and although in the show every kind of rape and beating and murder is treated as if it's some aberration from the norm, um, these things are actually the most ordinary things in the world. So. You said at the start that you loved Dexter. Love it. Despite its flaws. Yeah. Why do you love it so much? Um, it's interesting. One of the things I, I really love about it is the um, characterisation of the minor characters, the supporting characters. And after I'd seen the first season of Dexter and I couldn't work out why I loved it so much, um, I went and I read the, the novel, um, the first novel, and hated it. Shit. Yeah, <laughs> right. And it's and that's what terribly written, it is terrible. Boring. And that's when I figured out that was the real difference. What I've loved about the show was the was the supporting characters, and particularly the female characters who are fantastic. Um, Deb and um, the all of the female characters in it actually are really really strong. And you have the sense with all of them that they're not just there as accessories to him and his story. That you could follow any of them off, and they would have a whole complete life and story of their own. And in fact, what I found is because part of the attraction of the show and, and the much-discussed element of it is that the hero is a, is a killer and, and it's um, very uncomfortable to feel you don't want him to get caught. And I realised, especially towards the end of the first season, that, that the main reason I didn't want him to get caught was because of what it would do to Rita and to Deb, to his sister and to his girlfriend who, who had put their trust in him, who loved him. And, and it's a very clever use um, of these supporting characters to make an unlikable main character likeable. And in the book, you don't have that. They are just background characters who you only see through his eyes. And I just think that's one of, really one of the best things about it. Um, the other thing that I, I really think is interesting about it is that I, I don't in any way support vigilante justice or think that it's a good idea. I do think the show raises um, inadvertent... Well, not inadvertently, but it's not the, it's not the top thematic issue, but it, it raises the question of what justice is and, and the failings of modern justice systems. So even if you don't think that people who slip through the net of modern justice should be cut up by a vigilante killer, which I hope most of us don't, it does still make you think, well, what, what should happen here when this, when this system is all working as it's supposed to and there's all these rapists and murderers and child abusers wandering around? Um, and I, I think those are really, really interesting questions to talk about, even if when you come out of it you, you don't have any answers. So you think that the, the violence in Game of Thrones is more acceptable to us because it, it can be excused with the time and... Yeah, and I do. I mean, I quite enjoyed Game of Thrones. So yeah. I think it's a lot of fun. But something that, that did really bother me is, um, is especially the, the violence towards women in it and the, the kind of real casual acceptance, it seems, of, of sexual violence and rape in it. And I know it's meant to be, well... Of course, no one's going to make a big fuss about it, about this you know, girl being raped on a wedding night and everything goes on as normal because that's just how things were done then. And that's true. So you're not going to have anyone make a song and dance about it in the show. But do you have to show it explicitly? Do you have to show it explicitly? Exactly. And make it kind of look and hot, you know, because they do. Yeah, yeah. And, and that, 
I, I don't think, as much as I think there are some gratuitous elements in Dexter, I don't think you can get away with that in that show because the fan base and, and the audience would rise up and just say, hang on, you've just shown a girl be brutally raped on her wedding night and the next day she's in love with her husband? No one's going to accept that. But surely the, the fan base for Rome, I would think, is very similar. I think Rome has a predominantly female audience and yet they're willing to go with the idea of the, the slave... Because that's how it was then. Right, in, in, in that's all how the But there's still shades of grey characters, though. I mean, you know, Dexter um, has good qualities, but he's still a killer, you know. Like, oh, so, the, yeah. you know, these are still protagonists that we have an ambivalent yeah. kind of attraction to. Well, see, that's what I was, was going to say. I think Dexter, a lot of the violence in Dexter is excused. The, the violence that Dexter... Uh, is, is responsible for, is excused because he's the psychopath that we know. And because they make, take, take real care to show that the person on his table who he's killing has done something worse, or that the audience will think is worse. They've killed kids, they've, you know, um, they, they've done worse things, and they make sure we, we know that so that, uh, you know... So it's, it, it is no different to the, the gladiator system of... No. We're sitting around and putting our thumbs down. Yes, yeah. kill, kill and, it, and it helps the audience feel more comfortable with it because we know they've been, done terrible things. Um, we can kind of have this vicarious thing of feeling like we don't have to feel too bad about watching this person mm-hmm. get cut up into pieces. We, we think about Dexter is that he is he's a psychopath, so he has no sympathy for any other human. That's, that, that's the basis of, of his character. Yet we're supposed to have sympathy for, for him. Uh, we have sympathy for his situation. We have sympathy for uh, the trauma that he suffered when he was three years old. We have sympathy for him for, for the way that his uh, stepfather possibly even abused him by teaching him mm. skills that, uh, that maybe he shouldn't have learned. Uh, maybe. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, see, see, he was teaching him how to not get caught. Yeah. He, he accepted, he, you're a killer, you're going to kill people. Mm-hmm. Here's how to both um, fulfil my vigilante cop, can't stand mm-hmm. criminals getting away and, mm-hmm. and not get caught. And just in case we're ever going to forget that, he appears at least three times every episode <laughs> to abuse the ghost him from of the her. dead. <laughs> and the conscience of, of um, Dexter. Uh, and and I, find, I find that really weird in, in Dexter because, uh, again, we're put in a position where... We're barracking for someone to kill someone else. Yeah. We're barracking for the bad thing to happen. Yeah, and for him not to ever get caught. And for, and for him not to... To the extent that I think I found the, the most difficult to take and nearly turn me off the show altogether was the end of season two when, um, yeah, when, when someone who's a, a... Well, probably actually in, in the final analysis quite a similar character but with different motivations is, is killed and... Um, he's the one who knew what Dexter did and, and he was close to being caught. And that was a really kind of... In Baltimore, he'd be called good police. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, and that was a, a, you know, coming close to line. But I, I think the thing with sympathy, I mean, there's two things to that. One thing is that Dexter, particularly in the first series, tells us an awful lot that he doesn't feel emotion. Tells us an awful lot about everything. Right, but, he tells, but he's really, he's really strong on this thing. I don't feel anything. I have to fake emotion. I have to, but it, it's it's really evident that he does. He does feel emotion. He does feel attachment, and and I think that's what the show, when the show works too, is, is that level where 
you know, you can have those other cops joke and, and be completely blasé about this cut-up woman, and that's fine. We don't hear their inner thoughts, but their outer thoughts are bad enough. Um, and yet Dexter feels that he needs to show some kind of compassion or softness and, and is not really realising that it's, it's not that evident in other people either. Um, so that's one side of it. And, and the sympathy thing, yeah, that's, that's total manipulation of the audience. I mean, it's, it's great writing. It's having wonderful sympathetic characters around him who, who love him and we don't want them to be hurt and devastated. And it is showing us his trauma as a child and it is showing us the worst things that other people do. But in a way, too, aren't we, aren't we identifying with Dexter? Like, I think we're actually meant to go... Yeah. Go, yeah, I'd like to not have and any it helps, of that it helps baggage that, and just It helps that he's gorgeous, too. <laughs> no, really, it does, because if he was creepy-looking, I really don't think you would have any... any we're near the same level of audience identification. He looks lovely. Alfred Hitchcock believed that if you show a character being really good at their job, an audience will... He, he said it was, it was, it's always a way of... A character who's great at their so, job, the audience will go, I have a respect for you. And, and Dexter is clearly really good at his job. He's excellent. Dexter's job is something that, that I, I wanted to talk about because he starts off, he's a blood spatter analyst and, and that is what he does and that is all that he does. Mm-hmm. By season four, he starts just doing general forensics. <laughs> and because it's season four. <laughs> and his, his specialisation and the whole idea of Dexter being a specialist. He's a specialist murderer mm-hmm. and he's a specialist blood spatter animal. Are you just splitting hairs now, Josh? Because I think you might be. Oh, it's just you sound a bit hair splittery. <laughs> maybe I, I just... I, I find, it is TV. I find it. <laughs> it's, not, it's not real. It's not real, dear. If you follow all the... If you watch the whole show and then... <laughs> You go back and watch season one, which I've just recently done. There's actually a lot in season one, and particularly the first episode, that that becomes absolutely not true by season four or five. And it is this <laughs> gradual creep, both in his Does character. I mean, for example, the very first murder we see him do, um, which is of the... It's not his first murder, that's made clear, but it's the first one we see, is of the choir master who's been um, abusing and murdering boys. So, obviously, a real, real bad guy, so it makes it OK. Um, but that scene is particularly harrowing to watch more so than any of the later ones because Dex actually digs up the little boys and has them laid out when he's killing this guy which does make it really harrowing to watch every other murder he does after that Dexter puts photos up of the victims now whether that I don't know what the decision-making process was there in the production, whether it was just considered to be too onerous to have this character going digging up bodies on top of everything else he's doing with his job and his girlfriend and then he has kids. And, or if it really was that that first team was just too much for a lot of people to actually to see That's that the thing, there. Is sometimes not... This is what I was getting at with, with Rome. Sometimes it's not the actual act of violence itself no, that's that right. disturbs us. That's right. It can be something sort of around that that's the creepy idea yeah. that kind of gets under our skin and makes us go, yeah. Mm. yeah, if for some reason we can accept, okay, you're going to kill this guy because he killed little boys, but you dug him up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why is that necessary? Yeah, and, yeah. yeah like that's, that's too much for us to watch. I don't know. <laughs> um, well, Thank uh, you very much to uh, Emily Maguire, Dr. Johnny Baker. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings of talks and live events, go to Acme Channel and the Acme website.